and welcome to Behind the Scaffolding, a podcast where we talk to writing teachers about the hows and whys of what we do in the classroom. Coming to you from the University of Michigan. I'm Angie Berkeley. And I'm Gina Brandolino. Angie, it's Valentine's Day. It is, isn't it? And we know, and I know our listeners know, there's lots to love about teaching. And today we wanted to talk to some teachers we love about some of the writing assignment prompts that they love to use in their classes. That's right. Writing assignments are like the beating heart of our classes, aren't they? They really are. So what better part of teaching to talk about on Valentine's Day than a few beloved prompts? Exactly. And what better Valentine's Day gift for our listeners than an insider's view of these awesome prompts to get inspired by and adapt and learn from? This episode is like one of those variety boxes of Valentine's chocolates. We've got stuff about reading and research, visual culture, and even dance, a really cool assortment. So have a listen and be sure to check out our website, behindthescaffolding.com, to get a closer look at these prompts along with some of the other resources our guests today mentioned. These materials are kind of like those helpful keys or little maps that come with boxes of chocolates that tell you what's inside each one. You know, Angie? Oh, I do. I love those little keys and maps. And also, just a little heads up, we're still in the Zoom world of podcast recordings. The sound quality isn't the best in some of what you'll hear today. But don't worry, as always, our amazing guests and their incredible ideas make up for it all. Okay, so we're going to begin by talking not exactly about writing, but about reading with our first guest, Laura Clapper, who teaches a variety of composition courses for the English department writing program here at the University of Michigan. She says that for her, the best classes build community while cultivating curiosity. Okay, so we all know that so much of the kind of writing we want our students to do starts with thoughtful, critical reading, which is no small thing. And Laura's homework discussion prep prompt helps her students get into the right headspace for just that kind of productive reading. Hi, Laura, welcome to Behind the Scaffolding. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this awesome prompt, which is really, it seems to me, about reading and encouraging active reading and responding, um, which I think is something that that so many of our students really need help with. So I would love to, to hear more about it. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be on. And um, yeah, it it absolutely is about reading. Uh, The assignment is actually one um, that I use after I've shown a video. So sometimes I show a little video called Owning Your Communication. Um, It's a TED Talk that Louise Evans gave. And I thought it just kind of condensed some, um, some ideas that I'd come across in Susan David's work on emotional agility and Mark Brackett's work on emotions and regulation and learning and Brene Brown. And um, so, although she doesn't say any of them, um, but, and uh, this move, this uh, little movie clip is very short and it just gives a vocabulary to the kind of emotional mindsets that we might be in um, when we choose to interpret something a given way. And I found this really helpful myself Um, and the the mindsets or emotions or kind of modes um, that the video talks about are attack mode. So that's, you know, I'm reading something or I'm in conversation and I think that's wrong, that's bad, that's stupid, nah, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Self-doubt mode, some of these can kind of seem a little self-explanatory perhaps, but that's when I'm saying I was wrong, was I wrong? Oh, I'm so embarrassed, ah, what, what's happening, right? That kind of self-destruction mode sometimes it can go into, um, or that thing I care about might actually be bad or there's something sketchy about something that I value. Um, and then there's the weight mode, which Louise Evans calls, Um, W-A-I-T, what am I thinking? Um, And that is kind of um, building on a mode called detect. And detect is what in English we would just call kind of um, making space for critical reflection. So it's it's kind of getting ready to do some metacognitive work to just kind of take yourself out of that story. We call it read like a writer, you know, um, in our program a lot, but detect is that moment of just saying, hold your horses, don't jump to conclusions, like kind of notice that you're, you're feeling something, but often that's not the first emotion that we feel often detection is kind of when we have to 
move into because we're having an emotion. Um, and so wait, once you've kind of detected, oh, I got to hold my horses, I'm feeling something, then say, what am I thinking about, about this? Why am I kind of having that response? And then there's connect, which is the mode um, that often gets talked about and celebrated a lot by me, <laughs> by a lot of teachers, um, and certainly by my students when they love something like, or sometimes it's really exciting, of course, when students or I am connecting with um, something I'm hearing or reading or that they're reading or hearing because um, we're really saying like, whoa, I never thought about it from that perspective. Like you've connected and moved into their perspective because of that connection and kind of learned something new. Um, so those are the emotional perspectives. And so after students watch this little brief video, um, I have them do a little activity about how do you think this kind of information might be helpful for um, conversations, class discussions that we'll be having? How do you think it might um, be helpful for how you engage with texts in this class? And I just have them do a little reflection. But then throughout the semester, I'll give what I call the two mindset prompt, which is the one I submitted to you all, which is, can you just pick any two of those mindsets to respond from rather than just responding with one, which is usually gonna be whichever mindset we found ourselves in initially, our kind of go-to or default one. I read something and attack. Oh, that really got me, I don't like it. Or, oh, this feels so icky. Like what, what's happening, that self-doubt um, or connect and kind of feel like, and I'm done, you know? Um, and so I just wanted to encourage my, um, my students to, to do that. And so I give, I say, please pick one mindset and notice one thing that um, you're able to respond to in the text, one way you're able to respond, one question you're able to ask or a critique that you can offer because you're in that mindset. For instance, I went into attack mode because the author said, blah, blah, blah. And I know for a fact, there's this other thing that also goes on. And so I was able to offer a critique because I wasn't like really connecting with them or something like that. But then when students are able to, um, I asked them to just pick one other mode and say, what else can you notice if you are kind of moving into a different mindset? Um, and that is the prompt. That is so cool. I especially like how the detect and the wait mode kind of makes space for and honors what I feel like is a genuine response that students have often, I'm sure that we all have, but that doesn't necessarily really get much space in the classroom. Like, and by that, I mean, like, I think students think, well, I always have to be making connections, you know, or I always have to be making a critique that's, that's so well reasoned, but but they don't always have that yet. I mean, no reader always has that yet, depending on what they're reading. So that's a really great way, it seems to me, to make them feel like they do have something to say, even if they don't have something to say that they think is what they should be saying, usually in a class discussion. So that's really great. Well, and I feel like it also helps students stop having knee-jerk responses and start having thoughtful responses. And I wonder, was that part of your inspiration for this prompt? Like, can you talk a little bit about where this, I mean, you talked about the video, which you show, which I'd love to link to, by the way, if you could send the link to the video. But if you could talk a little bit about um, what other things helped inspire this prompt and what, I guess, what you hope students will learn from it um, a little bit more, that would be awesome. Um, absolutely. So what inspired it was actually my own failure <laughs> to kind of be fully um, aware of what my, interpretive go-to modes were costing me as a teacher in the classroom. And I, you know, as I think many of us do, I've had students over the years who didn't connect with the piece of uh, writing that I really was hoping, oh, this might blow some minds, or this is gonna really give us something juicy to, to dig mm -hmm. into. And I found myself frustrated, disappointed, sometimes angry that conversation would just go in a certain direction and I could, kind of other students would maybe voice some other expressions, but everybody kind of left with where they started. And I realized, oh, if I'm frustrated, it must be because I haven't gotten curious about <laughs> where's that feeling coming from? Is there something I can do? I don't need to be stuck there, right? And I realized I hadn't moved into connect mode to say why, I wanna get curious about why you're feeling that, why, that, that way, why you're, why you're having that response. And I found that 
the best way to get curious was to ask students about their values. Like what value feels threatened if you're in attack? Because you probably have a really good value. And the chances are that an author we're reading might have some values, um, maybe not so good, but generally probably some that you also have, you just don't have them on that issue or you don't think that's the value that comes into play. And so really it was inspired by my need to kind of um, improve my own uh, class discussions. And I love that it connected me with my students more because I started being a little more honest about them. Like, this is what I value here, which is why I kind of like this. And, you know, if you are coming from these other values, there might be some critiques that we could open up. Um, and then it didn't seem to be so shut down. But so, of course, it was inspired by me and by equal parts, maybe the students who were responding productively from an attack mode, just not as productively as Maybe we could if we were all responding with more emotional agility. <laughs> well, and I feel like it's so, I mean, that problem you describe of, of that or that frustration of like, oh, they don't love this. Like what, like what is happening? Like I love it or I thought it was going to do X, Y, or Z in the classroom and it's not. And it's, it's great. I mean, this is an antidote to that, right? Like rather than just, you know, trying it for three more times and then throwing it away <laughs> which is what I've done but um but well, yeah no it's great <laughs> I mean it's a way for you to kind of stay in the in the classroom in a way or like to stay sort of engaged in the conversation because if it is something that you love and you feel strongly about and you feel has something to say to the students right but they're not getting it I mean or something it's great to it's a great way to be able to keep it on the table oh yeah and for me, it's been helpful too to remind myself as much as my students, you know, like we are not our emotions. We have emotions, but they're not. I can keep going and have a good intellectual conversation and a good relationship um, with people when we're trying to talk about and have more curiosity about like, well, what else is there to say on this? Or what else can we think about with this rather than just making sure I'm right um, and, um, Kind of needing other others to to make me feel safe i mean we all need others to make us feel safe especially teachers but um like trying to look for that um to to see not being able to connect with something as not being inherently unsafe or not being if i'm not in attack mode if i'm in self-doubt mode is that bad to say no there's no bad emotion there's no good emotion they just are and they're there and they might tell us some things, they might be informative, they might not. It just kind of diffuses some of that, um, that kind of tension at times. Well, and also though, I think gives you space or like gives you an opportunity to be separate from your emotions, especially in that part where you ask them to switch. Okay, so like now consciously switch to a different mindset and what else can you, can you get from it? Um, and then also I feel like the other thing I love about it is that like practically speaking, it, I think forces students to get really specific and dig into the text because you ask them to find a particular passage, right? And then to respond to it in very particular ways. So that I think is, is also really useful. I found conversation did get better when we started doing that. I mean, this is anecdotal evidence from one teacher <laughs> for some surveys, but um, I enjoyed conversations more when the students and I were both trying to push ourselves to kind of look at things in, in different ways and also engage all the different ways the text was working on us, like emotionally and cognitively. And sometimes we may have an emotion that we're like, ooh, I didn't want to have that joy at this. I, I didn't want to laugh at that moment, right? And and to see, oh yeah, we are, are we have values too. And, our, and sometimes they don't match up and we can kind of check in with that, so. Yeah. Right, right. Could you tell us a little bit about um, one particularly cool moment in discussion or like response that a student has had after you've been doing this, this method? Yeah, well, one that comes to mind is at the end of the semester, actually, um, at, or my midterm review, I asked students like, what, what has been most helpful for you this semester just overall? And several students said that the mindset prompts that we did actually affected their writing. So in my argument class, one of my students said, um, I started thinking about the initial reaction 
that my readers might have to what I'm saying, because I am always checking in with what's my initial reaction and do I want to stay with it? And I, so I start thinking about how can I move? What values do I feel to like move it? And that was really, of course, like a moment of joy for me to see. Um, but um, yeah, I also had um, a, this student who I was originally most frustrated with the semester that I started doing this, um, he had responded to every text, every text with strong attack mode and in this hand kind of washing way saying, no, that's why I don't need to deal with this text because it's wrong. And so once I started getting curious and he was talking about his values a little bit more and then my other students were talking about their values that made them respond differently. Um, I noticed the participation was just a little bit different. It wasn't that big of a victory, but he stayed in the class and he was able to turn in some papers, you know, and, um, and did fine. But two years later, he wrote to me and said, you know, I've been thinking about that class and do you want to get lunch with me and my girl girlfriend? You know, like we could just catch up. And I thought that's a student I would have never connected. With. <laughs> I didn't get more curious about. So that was just, you know, one of those fortunate things. I feel like that's always how it happens with students with the biggest lessons is like, it's never anything they get that semester. Like they'll write you five years later and be like, you know what I was thinking about? And you're like, oh, <laughs> there it is, you know? And I always try to remember that. Like you don't have to make the, like you make the intervention in the moment, but you sort of wait for the boomerang to, to come back. Like it's, it doesn't always happen that moment that there is, uh, enlightenment or, oh, I see, you know, I see what you mean. Sometimes it just really takes time. Oh my God. I love the boomerang. You know what? It's not often you get to work a boomerang into conversation, especially <laughs> in modern times. So I'm going to take my victories where I can. I think the boomerang, its only function might now be metaphorical. I mean, <laughs> I don't really know <laughs> what, what people are doing with boomerangs across the world. All right. Next up, we have Dana Nichols, who teaches courses on writing, rhetoric, and literature in the U of M English department. She says that she sees teaching as a means of helping students learn how to make reasoned distinctions in a world that is consistently unreasonable. Dana's prompt is for her race and visual culture class, and like Laura's, in a way, it's about helping students cultivate a particular sort of critical reading and interpretation but then also giving them a chance to share what they know in a really fun and creative way. Dana, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much uh, for uh, being willing to do this. Thanks, happy to do it. And could you tell us before we talk about the assignment a little bit about the course that you uh, use this assignment in? Absolutely. Um, the class is Race and Visual Culture. And this was a class that I created. There's a 200 level version of it and there's a 300 level version of it. And so basically what the class is about is how can we understand something about race through studying visual culture, not just in terms of image analysis, but in understanding what a cultural construction of vision is. You know, how is it, how is it that we are developing an understanding of our national identity, of different groups, of the relationship between those things, processes of assimilation, all of that good stuff. So we look at a few different sort of historical moments. Um, so I'm teaching like the 300 level class right now. And yesterday we just finished talking about John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Wow. Um, and then we'll be moving on to the Battle of Little Bighorn. You know, these are big banner moments in American history where we're really trying to hash out who we are mm -hmm. and what we look like and who belongs and who doesn't belong. That sounds great. So tell us a little bit about the assignment. Okay, so the assignment, the assignment is to do a reader's guide to race and visual culture. And the thing that I like most about this assignment is that the assignment asks students to come up with some pieces of advice, some tips that you would offer somebody about what does it mean to read race and visual culture. But the term that I particularly like about it is that it asks them to identify a concrete audience outside of the academic context. And um, that was a trick that I learned actually through a science writing summer group of all things. <laughs> um, we had been reading about writing assignments in um, the sciences. And so I had read all this stuff. And one of the things that I noticed that they did really often was this kind of turn of 
taking a specialist piece of knowledge and interpreting that for a non-specialist audience. I mean, because it's true. What do you understand better than the things you teach? You know, it's the stuff I tend to understand best. So I liked that kind of idea. And I particularly liked it for visual culture because it's a class that people sign up for and zero of them know what visual culture is, right? <laughs> Nobody knows what we're talking about, what the class is about or how we're supposed to be doing. They just assume like, oh, uh, we're gonna talk about pictures and not have to read books, yay, you know? <laughs> so the first thing that we do in class is say, all right, what is visual culture? What does that mean? What kind of questions do we ask? What are we looking at? What are we thinking about? And how do we use those questions to help us understand something about race? So once we go through the first part of the class and do that, that's when I ask them to do this assignment. How do you explain what you've learned so far about how we engage in this process? Um, and how would you explain it to somebody else? It's totally interesting that uh, the science writing prompts were uh, inspiration for this. Yeah. Did it also, like, did this turn also address a problem that you saw in the class? Like you just mentioned, absolutely nobody knows what visual culture is. Did it help mm. sort of turn something in the class? Well, yes, what I was hoping that it was going to do is that I wanted it to give them a sense of ownership of that information, that somehow they had mastered this sort of way of thinking and asking questions enough that they could share it with somebody else. So, I mean, that's what I was hoping, to give a sense of mastery of these concepts. So most students in responding to the prompt, you know, it's still kind of academic, but not really. They just take the opportunity to make it a little less formal and that's fun and that feels good. But sometimes people have taken the opportunity to really push this idea of a specific non-academic concrete audience in, in interesting ways. I mean, it, it opens the doors for people to have more creative and interesting responses that I couldn't anticipate. Ooh, tell us about what some of them were. <laughs> okay. Um, so... I, I have a couple of favorites that come to mind, right? So one of them was written by this guy. And what he did was that he created his pieces of advice, his tips for understanding race and visual culture. And he directed it as a letter to his little brother and used all examples from the video games they've been playing together. Wow. <laughs> it was charming. It was just, you know, a charming paper to read. But, you know, the student really was jazzed by the idea of, oh, I could talk about these ideas in context of anything. I'm going to try it and talk about the gaming world. Um, so that was fun. I've had people, um, I had somebody who wrote a letter to a grandmother talking about their favorite movies that they had been watching together. You know, so, so some fun things like that. I think I would have been scared to talk to my grandmother about favorite movies, you know, like that. I feel like that, that took some guts. I mean, maybe grandmas are different now. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on the grandma. Depends on the grandma. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they, do you know if they shared them with these actual people? I asked about that. And uh -huh. uh, the student who had written, who, if they really had identified specific audiences um, and were thinking not just in sort of an amorphous friend way, but a specific person, they gave it to them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Who did that, who were really concrete about it. And the rest of them, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking about my, my friends. Um, but something about that audience piece gave them like something about a clearer sense of ownership over it, or yeah. that it was a meaningful piece of communication in a different way to choose yeah. someone they wanted to talk to. That's awesome. I actually have an assignment that's really similar to this that I use. In oh, my you do? Yeah, that's about, um, they, they have to write a guide to one of the more scholarly like theoretical pieces of like literary theory that we write and they direct it to a particular audience and yeah the thing i mean the thing i love about it too is that it it asks them to do something that i think many of them often think is boring or lame which is kind of like summary and synthesis <laughs> right. the audience piece gives them this chance to be so creative with it right and to really yeah. stretch and i love what i love what you do in inviting them to use examples from these other contexts that they're yeah living in you know i think that's really awesome 
Yeah. So I think that this is something that we're all going to be thinking about in the years ahead, because, you know, the students and the writing they do now is very different than it was when we started our careers. Um, So, I mean, I I think about my writing assignments now, and I think I'll continue to think about it in terms of like genre, um, rhetorical modes that we're asking students to do, the audiences that they may care about, you know, the kind of formats that they may feel invested or not. And so, you know, for what all the challenges that we have, we've got some really fantastic opportunities too, I think, to hopefully come up with stuff that is engaging. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now we're going to hear from a BTS alum, actually, Scott Beal. Scott works in the Sweetland Center for Writing, where he teaches classes on composition, digital writing, poetry, race and ethnicity, online dating, and fantasy world building. And he also teaches poetry to fifth and sixth graders at Ann Arbor Open School. He spends a lot of time trying to convince students that weirder is better except when it comes to online misinformation, where things have gotten far too weird already. And this idea of weird comes into play in the prompt he's going to tell us about, which is a research-driven essay that he calls WTF. Let's listen. Okay, hi, Scott. Welcome once again to Behind the Scaffolding. It's great to see you. So you're going to tell us about a prompt that we love, your prompt, entitled provocatively WTF. I guess I am going to tell you about that. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, I have this essay, um, the fourth essay out of five for my first year writing class um, for the past two years is called WTF. And and it's essentially just a provocative branding for a straightforward research essay in some ways, you know? Uh, So, but telling your students that now their next essay is a research paper um, has a has a way of yeah that doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't foster enthusiasm <laughs> you might say so um, but this is a way to try to make the process more interesting and uh, for them and for me so is it all a smokescreen or is there something WTFy about this assignment no it's so it's I don't think it's terribly WTFy but I will tell you what um, so part of the thing is so when you say research essay. Um, students have often, especially coming into a first year writing class, they think of a research essay as fundamentally like information gathering on a topic, right? So you're going to do a research essay on, um, I don't know, on ALS, and then you're going to just like find all the sources that mention it and gather information in a kind of random fashion and report it, you know? Um, And that's not what any of us want. Um, Also, I think often they're given a research paper topic based on something they don't particularly care about or have a lot of curiosity about. Um, They choose something that they think they can do, you know? Um, There's going to be a lot of sources about this, so I guess I'll write about this, you know? Um, And uh, again, that makes for boring papers for them to write, uh, especially with it being like a 10-page paper, you know, they don't want to do that. So... Um, so there's two things. Um, I, I mean, I think starting with WTF, uh, this is a feel like WTF is a feeling we have often, right? <laughs> um, every day, multiple times a day about something that is uh, perplexing and vexing. Um, sometimes it's just like, what is wrong with people? Sometimes it is, how can that be the case, <laughs> you know? Um, and why, you know, why would anyone do that thing? Um, and uh, so... And I like that. I think that that's the perfect starting point for research, you know, like having a, having an interesting like something that you actually are surprised by and care about is some is the starting point I want my students to have. Um, I want them to get used to that as a starting point, no matter what, with, if it's not for my class, but classes down the road, if they're in a poli sci class or a kinesiology class and they have to write a paper starting with a point of like, well, this is the thing I don't get. Um, is the right starting point rather than this is the thing I do get and I think would be easy to talk about, you know? Uh, so I think the title helps point them in that direction. And um, and I have built into the assignment this kind of like a dual sense of WTF. Oh, um, yeah, I really appreciated that. <laughs> so like, so, and we talk about, so like how a good question leads to follow-up questions. So the I spell out that WTF also means what's the follow-up? Um, and so, and this is a way to help them think about 
how to structure a research essay, you know, that like if you have to write a 10 page paper and often they balk at that, like how am I ever going to write a 10 page paper, you know, um, that you don't think of it as just about one thing that is a string of questions, each question leading to another question to another question that can help you feel like you are um, progressing, you know, in an argument or an essay, you know, um, so, so you're, for, yeah, I mean, and, and this is, um, so this is built into the assignment that they that they should have not just their opening driving question, but that it should lead to kind of sub questions or follow up questions that help propel them forward. Yeah. And you know what else I really liked about your prompt, too, was that how embedded a particular model of what you're asking them to do was in the prompt itself. Like you discuss in your prompt the um, the Kim Todd essay as like a model for them. And I, I really appreciated that because one thing I've found sometimes when I've done prompts that ask students to research whatever it is you're interested in, it can be a little scary for them. And they're like, I just, I don't know. It's so open-ended. It feels so open-ended to them. So I thought that was a nice, I liked that a lot. That was a nice balance of like, yeah, it has to be driven by like the enthusiasm that's behind the original sense of WTF, right? Um, but you know, balanced out with like, but like, look, here's a model. Here are the things that this other author has done that, that you could try out yourself as well. Yeah, the essay is called Curious. It's by Kim Todd. And um, and I think it's great. Um, they don't always love it. Some of them are really confused by it, um, which is fine. Uh, but, uh, but in some ways, it's about good questions you know part of it is about like research into what makes good questions what's what sparks curiosity and so um not only can i use the essay as a model to talk about like what what research means for her you know um and there's this great i mean just the first kind of page and a half section of this essay she's citing like um historical research kind of scientific research quotes from like kind of literary giants and also youtube comments you know about like the the weirdness of the suriname toad right so um the i think part of what it opens up is like what research can mean and like how what a variety of evidence can be um that it's not just um, and I don't know, maybe some instructors will, will, will not appreciate this for me, but it's not just finding scholarly articles and, you know, like that scholarly articles are, are the right kind of articles to solve, to answer certain kinds of questions, but not to answer all kinds of questions. And, um, and sometimes you need a balance of varieties of evidence. So it's a good model for that. And it also, um, allows us to kind of like, uh, use what she has to say about good questions to think about for them, well, what's a good question to start with? Can you tell us some of some memorable responses or talk about a, a memorable response to the prompt that your students have delivered? Yeah, sure. I mean, so one of the things that's been great about this prompt, I was going back through um, responses, like it gives some of them, um, if they choose to, an opportunity to delve into something that is really personal to them you know, that they have a lot of intrinsic motivation for. So I've had like a student who identifies as asexual get to write about like why like asexual is like uh, hard for people to wrap their heads around as a like as a as a as a way of being in the world, you know, um, or what um, what the effect is of being an adopted on kind of psychological development growing up, you know, um, or what it's like to grow up in a mixed culture family, you know, where um, uh where like half your family is kind of like wary of the cultural background of the other half of your family and vice versa, you know? And so like a lot of them have been able to explore these really personal things and weave together kind of personal narrative with their then research and go back and forth in a way that's really, um, really compelling. And that they, they are making a discovery that is um, that they are, are really motivated about. And then I've also, I mean, it's, I love the way that, I mean, so some, some of their topics are, um, are are not as off the wall, you know? So I've had people write about like, why is peanut butter and jelly such a great sandwich combination, you know, or things like that. <laughs> Would totally read. But also, you know, I, I've had some really good um, investigations recently into like specific internet cultures, right? So um, so like, uh, I, hadn't yet, I hadn't even heard of Wattpad, but like apparently- Oh Wattpad yeah. Was the, like, like, so I had like a, a student write a really, really good essay about the effect of like, reading smut on Wattpad for teenage girls. What you know? is Wattpad? Let's let's it's, back up here. Yeah, it's like a and how does know. Angie know what it is? <laughs> it's a it's fan fiction, right? 
yeah, yeah I think it's like a, a fan, fan fiction, fiction form. or like a you know a kind of like a an amateur you can write your stories and post them and anonymously and other people read them kind of a site is a lot of um, smut apparently yeah yeah not exclusively i don't think it's like designed with that in mind but um but, you know <laughs> as any anonymous open-ended corner of the internet does it gravitates towards smut you know so um but it's weirdly you know like uh it's unlike other corners of the internet where smut propagates it's primarily or like one of its biggest audiences is is teenage girls right so she was writing about what is the effect of this access to smut for this demographic like how does it what is what's empowering about it and what's possibly dangerous about it um and it was it was great you know and like that's the kind of investigation you're not going to get from necessarily a lot of prompts right um, another student wrote about um, what's it like to belong to a dead fandom online, you know, like like uh, like where where the fandom has kind of moved on, but you're still in like the kind of echo of like what used to be a living fandom, and one of the few people who still cares, trying to post, you know, fan fiction or fan theories or things, um, and why do people stay in them? You know, what is the kind of like isolation and loneliness of that, and what is the possible rewards of that? You know, and so. Yeah, I mean, so those are like it's it's opened up the possibility for some of my students to think about like I can I can research this fascinating thing that other people might not care about um, in a way that they wouldn't necessarily think is possible, and that's been that's been awesome. Those sound like fascinating essays. Uh, they all sound great. Do you ever get any duds? Um, I mean, of course. I think I think um, so. I don't want to I don't want to call out any of my students as duds, but I think. Uh, and none, no total duds or anything, but I think they go, the ways in an essay like this go wrong are the ways that any um, kind of research-based essay go wrong, that the questions start off too broadly, or they just kind of reaffirm that, like, they're just not strange enough, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, so if it, if, if someone, someone's analysis is essentially like a reaffirmation of conventional wisdom, you know, um, then that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to steer them past. Um, but it doesn't, it, it's, you know, the success rate is less than 100% for that. Okay, last but not least, we have our Sweetland colleague, Naomi Silver. Naomi is a lecturer with the Sweetland Center for Writing, the Lloyd Scholars for Writing in the Arts Living Learning Program, the Comprehensive Studies Program, and the Digital Studies Institute. In her teaching, she says, she strives for transparency, collaboration, anti-racism, and student choice. Naomi talked with us about a multimodal prompt she uses in a class about writing and motion, one that pushes students to explore something they may or may not already be curious about, their own bodies. Here we go. Naomi, would you tell us um, first a little bit about the class that you use this assignment, these couple of assignments in? Yeah, sure. Um, the class is called Writing in Motion, and I don't actually have the full title with me. But it's a class for the Lloyd Scholars for Writing in the Arts program. Um, it's La Soie 230. And it, um, it's like the second one of those where students are supposed to, you know, they've done their first year writing course and now they're doing a class where they're exploring writing further, but in connection to an actual like praxis, artistic praxis of some kind. And so this class focuses on um, movement composition. Like I don't call it dance because it's not a class for dancers. It's, I mean, I get students in it who like dance, but um, it's more just people who are kind of curious and they're like, oh, I like to move and sure, I'll check this out or I, it's one that fits my schedule. Um, so it's not a dance class, but it's a movement focused composition class that looks at the relationship between like writing and or composition in words we can say and composition in movement. Wow, yeah, that would be scary if uh, you said dance, right? There's a way that it gets sort of friendlier when you just say movement, right? And I don't want to think that like, you know, we're gonna be like either doing like this or, you know, or we're doing like some hardcore choreography, like TikTok, whatever, you know, but more just that, yeah, we're exploring our, our embodied selves and thinking about how do we make actually arguments through movement? So, so that gets to, to your assignment, actually, which is um, in two parts and um, a written part and a movement part, not a dance part, right, but a movement part. So, so tell us about these assignments. So the assignment as a whole, like I, I think of it as one assignment with two parts. Um, it's called Autobiography of My Body. 
And um, yeah, it's a multimodal assignment, right? Which means that like students are working in different modes. And if you think of like, you know, the textual mode, the aural mode, the oral mode, and then you have what is often called the gestural mode, which basically, you know, means movement, right? But it might be like, you know, if I'm giving a speech and I'm embodying, I'm in the gestural mode as well as the oral mode. So it's, it's you know, literally like multimodal in that way. Um, but yeah, it has two parts that the students work on sequentially. And so there's a written composition that is essentially a personal narrative, um, but it, it has analysis as well, because I want them to be sort of not just telling the story, not, not just narrating the autobiography of their body, but sort of thinking through like, what are some of the meanings I can pull out from that? And what am I, you know, what does it help me think about and um, explore in my own experience? Um, and then there's the movement composition that is a sort of remediation of the written piece or kind of translation. You know, in the assignment, it says, well, maybe I'll read the objectives if that's okay. Sure. Um, yeah, so I say, the purpose of this assignment is to continue our investigations of the role personal stories and individual experiences can play in creating work that speaks to others and that may even call others to action. We'll perform these investigations both in writing and in movement in order to develop our understanding of how different media might differently catalyze our arguments and narratives and how our arguments and narratives change depending on their mode of production. So they create for the movement part this um, this short you know piece of movement, not a dance, short piece of movement, movement composition um, that is reflecting you know kind of on this on the meanings, the ideas, the sort of the things that they were exploring and arguing essentially through their first narrative. But how does that come out differently when they do it in movement? What changes? How can they how can they make that argument you know in this new mode? And then they so. I assume they record their, they record themselves doing the movement and that's how they submit it. So when we were live, they performed it. That's what I was wondering. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we meet, um, well, in, when we've been live, we've met in the basement of, uh, Alice Lloyd Hall, which has a dance studio. Yeah. So they would actually perform it, which was cool. But then of course the last couple of years, um, they've recorded it and turned it in that way, which has also been cool. So it's, it's, but it's shifted a little bit and some of the other assignments too have shifted because of that element, that distance element. It seems like this assignment is a gimme for this kind of class, but it still seems like it, it's not in the wheelhouse of most writing teachers to make up this kind of assignment, right? So can you tell us a little bit about what inspired it and how, how you decided, um, how you decided on the, maybe not the objectives, but the, the sort of components of the assignment? in my past, I did dance for a long time. And it's been a really important part of what I love to do, which kind of totally died in grad school. Um, and so then, um, so and then I've been teaching writing since then, right? <laughs> since grad school. Um, yeah. In fact, it was the very first thing I ever did in grad school was to teach a writing class. I, so I've been interested in like coming back to the idea of what's called in writing studies embodied rhetorics and sort of thinking about how you know like the spaces in which we compose you know other aspects of our bottle like our physical experiences inflect um the writing that we do are part of our writing process even if we don't realize it and then that also you know i think extends into like well what are we actually doing with our bodies so that's like a piece i was interested in also really interested in some work in um, in like dance studies. This woman, Susan Lee Foster, who has an article called Choreographies of Protest, where she analyzes um, like the lunch counter sit-ins and AIDS die-ins, act up die-ins, and then um, you know, some other major protests and looks at like the ways, like how they're choreographed essentially, that it's not just like, you know, random that civil rights uh, activists were able to withstand all of that abuse, right? That they practiced it and they, you know, they learned how to dispose their bodies in a certain way and, you know, et cetera. And so that was also really interesting to me. So those are kind of some of the things behind it, but also just interested in uh, multimodality, right? And so wanting to explore multimodality, but to think of it like in this embodied sense rather than in the media sense that we tend to think of or just in terms of visuals and, and audio. And so quick shout out to Carol Tell, 
uh, who to teach that class at Lloyd and there was like a space for it in the curriculum. So that was really awesome. But then like the second inspiration actually for the assignment itself is um, a woman named Jennifer Harge, who's a Detroit based choreographer and performer who was teaching some classes at U of M and you know does a lot of work with folks in the dance department here. And I was taking her technique class and she actually assigns an autobiography of my body to her dance students. And for her, that's a way for them to try to think beyond like the box of the dancer's body, you know, and like all of those constrictions, uh, but also to really get into questions of like, you know, social identity and sort of what are they bringing to that space? Cause like her experience as a black queer choreographer, you know, in starting out in ballet spaces and et cetera, you know, having to navigate that until she kind of found her own kind of place in the dance world and her own movement style, et cetera. Um, okay, so I, I wrote actually one of those when I took her technique class and um, she gave me permission to adapt the assignment so that we could extend it into a multimodal um, sort of narrative and analysis. So doing kind of different things than it was in her class, but that concept came from her. So I totally want to give that a shout out. It's, that's interesting to hear the background of, of this assignment in an assignment for a dance class. And I can see the ways that it would invite dance students into, frankly, their bodies more. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder if you see the same thing happening in your classroom. Do you, sometimes composition is uh the way we ask students to do it um, in college is, is alienating and hard for students. Does the movement part of this help them access the writing part of this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think for some of my students, movement, the movement part is alienating too. They're like, oh my God, and I have to do this in front of other people. And, and so that was actually one thing about the pandemic when they could, we were, would be practicing things or doing like um, improvisation to develop movement and they would turn their cameras off. And I think that was very freeing. It's like, no one will see me doing this. Okay, but that's that's an aside. There's some really hard stuff that has to also be treated like really carefully and gently, like students writing about their eating disorders or about sexual assault, um, but you know, other things, all kinds of other things too. And so it does like, so it's not just that kind of stuff, but it's also like, yeah, helping them, like they they will often sort of think about themselves as students differently because they're not just brains sort of doing, you know, learning and stuff, but that like, oh yeah, my body is part of that and how I'm sort of navigating spaces is part of that and how I like sit in a room with other students and what that feels like. Yeah, so I think it does, it does kind of get at things that are interesting for them to explore too. I mean, I think they tend to really like this assignment. It seems like maybe the focus on the body gives students a kind of literal concreteness that can sometimes be difficult, I think, when they are tasked with a personal narrative. It's, it's easy sometimes, I think, for it to get abstract quickly, you know, and it's easy both in terms of the writing, but also sort of on an emotional level, like it's hard to be concrete sometimes, and it's hard to really dig into and find that, that evidence and that specificity in your own life. But, but the body maybe is an opportunity for that, that, that they might not have otherwise, or they might not have thought of, that the structure of this assignment seems to offer them. Yeah. So yeah, they are able to be a lot more um, concrete more immediately, though it's still hard for them, I think, to describe what it feels like to be in their bodies. You know, I mean, if we think about that for ourselves, yeah, like if I'm going to describe myself walking down the street, for instance, like, how do I do that? What am I noticing? What are the sensations I'm attending to or whatever? That's good practice, though. It's good to practice different kinds of noticing, I think, for, yeah. for any writer, really. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, Naomi, can you tell us about a particularly memorable response that a student has, has had to this assignment? You know, I was thinking about this prepping for this talk, and, like, I'm pretty often blown away by what students do with this prompt. So it was, you know, it was hard to choose one. Um, but I'll go back to a response from, like, the very first time I taught the class, so back in 2018. And one thing that really stands out to me about this student's response is also something I love about the assignment more broadly, which is that um, it's the first assignment that sort of taught me that in this kind of multimodal work that translation goes both ways so that there's this kind of interconnectedness and sort of feeding of the written composition and the movement composition. 
Um, and so this one student, I'll talk a little bit about like her, the way she responded to the assignment. So she's um, an Indian American student who has extended family in India and her family here in the US, I guess actually she moved here when she was seven. And then her family here in the US goes back every year to visit uh, their family there. One of the things that she wrote about is just the experience of like taking that flight every year and sort of getting on the plane and doing all the stuff. And she wrote, she wrote about, for instance, um, you know, like going through the security line and like how her brother inevitably gets pulled over and searched, you know, and so the kind of, you know, the, the identifications, like sort of being a, a brown body in that space, so to speak, um, and how, but then also the way that it's comfortable um, because it's, she, well, what she, she wrote, actually, I have a little quote from her here. She wrote, uh, I've written about my excursions to India often and usually tried to draw from sensory details as much as I possibly could with sights, smells, and sounds, but never have I considered my body in this space. Never have I thought about how my movements in the airport are rehearsed familiar choreographies. And so, yeah, coming to sort of like this prompt leading her to think about that experience as a kind of choreography. And then she wrote about it in that way about, you know, okay, the standing in line and the things that happen again and again, and okay, and like putting my luggage up and then sitting down and clasping my seatbelt and ah, taking a breath and 13 hours, two layovers and we'll be in India, you know? And so she, it was really nice. Um, anyway, so it was, it was just so, it was a memorable response because it was just, it showed so many things about this assignment that, you know, students have then showed me again, as I've continued to teach it, that, yeah, that they can explore something in words that's really meaningful, but then when they try to explore it again in this other mode, and maybe if they were doing it in video, it would lead them back too, but maybe not, because that's a more narrative mode. Whereas like, I think doing it in movement, they know they can't translate it exactly. So it has to be a different way kind of into the idea. And then that really leads them to kind of think through the idea more fully to get at, you know, what is it that I'm, I'm wanting to say here? What I'm, what's my meaning? That's a, that was a hell of an example. I hope that all the papers that you read um, are that good. I've been pretty happy with them. I mean, they obviously vary, you know, but um, yeah, they're just fun to read because they're, they're interesting. Okay, that's it for prompts we love. We want to thank all of our guests for sharing these fantastic prompts with us. And we hope that you, our listeners, found something to love here, as well as to bring into your own classrooms. Yes. Thank you, guests. We love you. And thanks to the Podcasting the Humanities Virtual Institute, which Gina attended this summer, and which is facilitated by the National Humanities Center in cooperation with San Diego State University, and especially to Pam Lack, our virtual podcasting guru. And thanks to you listeners for joining us. We hope your Valentine's days are full of love and your semesters are fantastic.